Thank you, Pastor Jason, for uh, reading God's Word uh, for us. Uh, we continue a series of studies from the Gospel of Mark, and which takes us to chapter 7 today. And um, mind you, our discipleship uh, study group, uh, or rather study guide, includes the first part of chapter 8, uh, but I shall leave that portion for the next week's sermon. Today, the sermon uh, will look at 37 verses from Mark chapter 7, actually 36, right? Now, there are a few things the Lord Jesus does for, for which we uh, cheer. Sometimes we raise our hands and we say, hooray! And then there are a few things which the Lord does that gives us discomfort. We swallow hard and we keep quiet. And then lastly, at other times, Jesus does things that bewilder us. We are baffled. And so we say, why though? We whisper to ourselves. And so we cheer, we keep mum, or we are confused. In today's chapter, find which act of Jesus invites your cheer, which act keeps you tight-lipped, and which act confounds you. Now the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus because, we read as usual, they had bones to pick with the Lord. They had seen his uh, disciples eat with dirty hands, not meaning that they were dirty as in dirty, but that their hands were unclean. Their hands were defiled, dirty because they had not washed according to Jewish and Pharisaical standards. And Mark explains for us that this washing requirement by the Pharisees extended beyond just hands. It also applied to washing of pots, washing of cups, washing of vessels, and even couches. This washing was a tradition that was handed down and enforced by the Pharisees. Now, how the tradition uh, came about may actually find it or its origins uh, from laws that applied to priests. So the priest Aaron, for instance, uh, including his uh, priest sons, they were all to wash their hands and their feet before they enter the tent of meeting. And so you read that in Exodus chapter 30. Now, if that was the origin of the washing tradition, the Pharisees then were broadening, broadening the scope by imposing Levitical laws to the common people. And not only that, some even elevated this washing requirement, this washing tradition, they elevated it to a commandment from God. And so it was said that there were rabbis, rabbis who would utter while they're washing, and they would say, blessed is he who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of hands. So this washing tradition, this was the bone that they wanted to pick with Jesus. So they said, why? Slide comes up. Why, they asked, do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? 
but eat with defiled hands. Now what Jesus does is about to earn your, woo, your cheer, your hoorays. The Lord said to the Pharisees, he said, remember Isaiah the prophet? The prophet who uh, spoke against the empty religiosity of the Israelites, which earned them the Babylonian siege. That prophet, Jesus tells them, spoke of you too. Because the Pharisees' religion is the same empty religion that their forefathers subscribed to. It is, it is religion that honors with only the externals, yet withholding from God the internal. It is religion of mere words. It is only words, as the BG song would put it, but mere words that will not take God's heart, his heart, away. So what does Jesus do? Well, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Now we know what that means. So we, we cheer. We say, way to go, Jesus. Call them what they deserve, Pharisees. Now many of us understand the word hypocrite to mean phony or fake. So one who does not do what he preaches is a hypocrite, for example. But actually, the word hypocrite means actor or stage player. In our local lingo, I learned it's called wayang. Right? You're just staging a show. It's just for show. Jesus tells the Pharisees their religion is just for show. And he gives a few proofs. Firstly, they cleverly voided God's commandments with their traditions. It's just for show. Because, secondly, they fussed over external impurities, but they ignored internal uncleanness. So firstly, how did they cancel God's commands? Well, by cleverly replacing God's commandments with their traditions. And so one tradition Jesus cites is there, we just read, is their korban vow. Korban is the Hebrew word for offering. So an offering which one dedicates uh, to God. It was a godly discipline, no doubt, that when one offers something to God, one must follow it through. One must not take it back. One must not change his mind. But when a hypocrite employs the korban vow, we learn that it was just for show. It was just for show. His heart is not really in it. So when I was younger, I remember a man who once announced to everybody that he was giving thousands of dollars to the church offering. Yes, he announced it in public. However, after realizing that it would not qualify for tax deductions, the man <laughs> wanted to take back what he announced, what he had said. And so his offering was just for show. 
In Jesus' time, a korban that is just for show was when a man dedicated his property to God, declared it korban. He declared it so that his parents will have no access to it. It's like, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Mom. Uh, but I had already set aside the money for God. It's korban. And God forbid it that I, you know, take from it and give it to you. The Pharisees approved of such practice. They, in fact, came up with a korban idea. So they're like legal experts. Sorry, our lawyers. They are like legal experts who search for loopholes to get away from tax obligations to see if they can avoid paying taxes. The teachers of the law here introduced a way by which they can get away from obligations to their parents. And that is by declaring their property to belong to God. Korban. Jesus calls them hypocrites because outwardly the korban practice makes one look religious. However, the practice was in effect canceling. It's canceling God's commandment for one to honor their parents. So aging parents who needed support were not allowed to draw from the monies that had been declared korban. That korban tradition, Jesus says, is vain worship. Vain worship. Because officially giving the money to God makes a mockery of the Lord who commands his people to honor their parents. Vain worship. It is empty worship, too, because it upholds the traditions of men while revoking while making void the word of God, because the Korban tradition is just one example from the many such things that the Pharisees do, which is to make void the word of God by their traditions, because they cleverly canceled God's commandments with their traditions. Jesus rightly called them hypocrites. Why does Jesus call the religion, their religion just for show? Well, because secondly, they, they fussed over external impurities but ignored internal uncleanness. So Jesus hits at their washing traditions with a parable. He says, slide comes up, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So why do we care more about the externals than internals? Let me ask you this question. Is it because we are people pleasers? We care about how we look to others? We fuss over optics, how we look? Or maybe it is because it's a lot easier to keep the outside clean. I say it is easier to keep the outside of the cabinet clean than the inside. So if you're watching a lot of YouTube videos, 
there have been, there's been a lot of home renovation video online, isn't there? Lots of home renovation video, uh, video that always showcase the clean and minimalist look. And whenever I watch it, I would always say, did you notice that they never open the cabinets for you to see? For you to see the inside? Why? Because it is far easier to keep the external clean, but not the internal. Because when you dig the inside, you will find that there is a lot of mess. So when I was a boy, I loved to tinker and open appliances. So I used, I mentioned this before, my, my, my mom says, you know, you, when you grow up someday, you wouldn't want to be a mechanic, but you are a tyrannic, you tear things apart. So they say that when you hold a hammer, you look for nails. I was holding a screwdriver, and so I opened up every appliance at home that I could find. Before I did, I was confronted always with a warning label, and you have seen this. The warning label puts it, no user serviceable parts. It's yellow. No user serviceable parts. Meaning, don't open it. Don't open it because you are not trained to service it or to fix anything inside. You are not the authority who can do it. When Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, and when he lists the sins that come out of our hearts, Jesus is telling us, look at the inside and see all the mess. See all the filth. Do you see evil thoughts? Do you spot sexual immorality? Do you see coveting, envy, slander, pride? Look at the inside and acknowledge that you and I cannot clean it. You and I cannot fix them. Only one authority can clean the mess, service it, and perform a needed repair. And that authority is Jesus. It's Jesus. And he calls us with this message in the Gospel of Mark, repent and believe in his gospel. So why are the Pharisees called hypocrites? Well, because they canceled God's commandments with their traditions. And even after Jesus called them out, we read that there was no evidence that they made a turnaround. No evidence, no such evidence. They carried on with their show, with their acting, fussing over the externals, and ignoring, ignoring the internal, caring more about optics, how they look outside, than how they look to God, who searches and probes our deepest, our hearts. And so we all cheer Jesus when he calls out the hypocrites. You hypocrites, we all cheer Jesus. But do not cheer too quickly. Because what if Jesus calls you out? What if you are the one who works hard on the externals? 
Example, you make your children attend church, you teach the word, you serve, you look good on the outside, but you ignore the inside. Inside, there's envy brewing. Inside, there's coveting. Inside, there are evil intentions. If that is the case, then you are an actor. You are a stage player. You are a hypocrite. But you can still cheer. You know why? Because the gospel of Jesus declares righteousness to all who surrender to him and to all who call on him to purify their hearts. You can cheer because the Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so in reading this passage, do not feel insulted if Jesus calls you a hypocrite. Why? Because the Lord's offensive remark achieve God's purposes in revealing our heart's inner desires. Instead, we ought to be thankful if we are offended by Jesus. We ought to be thankful. And then we ought not to walk away pridefully like the Pharisees. Instead, when Jesus offends you and I, let us run to him with humility and find forgiveness. The next account will show us how that is done. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn with me to that portion, verses 24 to 30. To, to 30. Jesus, we are told, went on to the vicinity of Tyre, probably to rest, probably to spend some time away from the crowd. Suddenly, we are told that a woman came to Jesus and fell at his feet. Who is this woman? Well, the gospel writer, Matthew, tells us that she is a Canaanite. She is a Canaanite coming from the tribe of Canaan, Canaan, the tribe who were bitter enemies of uh, Israel. Mark tells us that this woman, she is born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she is a Gentile. She was brought up in Greek culture. She spoke the Greek language, which is why some have said that she must have belonged to the upper class. Greek culture, Greek educated. We see now that what is happening here in Gentile territory, an unclean woman, because she is a Gentile, in an unclean territory, according to pharisaical standards, comes to Jesus. And she begs the Lord to help her daughter because her girl has an unclean spirit. And what Jesus is about to do may cause us some discomfort. And you know what I mean. The Lord tells the woman, slide comes up. He tells her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did you hear that? Jesus calls the woman's daughter a dog. Well, it meant too that the woman herself is referred to also as a dog. 
Now, mind you, this statement in today's standard can be considered a racial slur. Try doing that when you walk out of service, but don't tell them that I told you to do so. Today's standard, this can be considered a racial slur. But please remember, I mentioned a while ago, that the Lord's offensive remark achieves God's good purposes. So do the Pharisees, the Lord's offensive remarks solidified their rejection of Jesus. To this woman, however, it invites faith. The offensive remark of Jesus invites faith. Look at how this educated, upper-class woman responded. Next slide. She tells the Lord Jesus, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so the woman, given her sta status, could have walked away because of the insult. Yet you could say that unlike the Pharisees, this woman swallowed her pride. She acknowledged her place and she pleaded for grace. I mean, look again at her reply. Could you please flash the slide again? She addressed Jesus as, as Lord. The word that is used by servants to call their masters, Lord. In fact, this was the only instance in the Gospel of Mark where somebody addressed Jesus as Lord, Sir, Master. This upper-class woman calls Jesus Lord, exhibiting for us humility. Humility which, by the way, is a key requirement to discipleship. She calls her Lord. Secondly, she agreed that whatever Jesus came to do, it was primarily for the benefit of his own people, the Jews. Let the children be fed first, Jesus said, alluding to bringing the gospel first to the Jews. First to the Jews, yet not only to the Jews. And the woman understood this, it seems. And so she doggedly replied, pun intended, she doggedly replied, even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, last Sunday, we had a family over our home for lunch after service. And uh, because the young toddler who belonged to that family made a mess while eating, the mother kept apologizing, saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm making a mess. And we assured her, don't worry about it. Why? Because Coco, our poodle, was cleaning up under the table. He was quietly helping himself to the food that fell from the table. And that is what Coco does. Sitting our feet around the dining table, always smiling, at times with puppy eyes, sending a message, which is, spare a piece of bread for me. The dog would not leave, but would patiently wait 
for a piece of bread or meat to fall, always placing his bet, his bets on the master's goodness. Dogs under the table get to eat the children's scraps. Now, perhaps this woman kept a pet dog at her home. I don't know. But what we know is that like a dog, she looks up and waits for crumbs to fall. This woman was on her knees and waited upon her Lord to grant her grace. So if you contrast her with the Pharisees, while the Pharisees recoiled at Jesus' offensive remarks and rejected what Jesus offered, this woman accepted her place and trusted Jesus to even just give her crumbs. And so she left, we read, not because she stormed out feeling insulted, she left because her Lord gave her permission to leave with the promise that the unclean spirit has left her daughter. Dogs. That is what we all are, friends. Unclean, dirty, wild even. And we have no place in God's household. We belong to the outside. But because of Jesus, we the unclean are now made clean. And so like the woman, we will have no qualms seeing ourselves as little dogs entering the kingdom of God. Because that is what we all are. So the book of Romans tells us that we Gentiles, we have been privileged to receive God's mercy as a result of the Jews' disobedience. But their disobedience, we must bear in mind, is just like ours. It's just like ours. Both our disobedience does not deplete God's mercy. Because the same book tells us that God wants to show mercy to all. So please remember that. Dogs. That's what we all are. So one commentator suggested the next time you sing Amazing Grace, instead of using the word, he saved a wretch like me, try changing it. He saved a dog like me. Because that is what we all are. Unclean, made clean by the Lord Jesus. Moving on, we look at the last account here in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. The last account in this chapter records for us an act that may probably leave us bewildered. That is, Jesus during his trip to the Decapolis. He encounters a man who was deaf, a man who could hardly talk. So commentators suggest to us that he's not mute, but he probably has a, has a speech impediment. It's very likely that he wasn't born deaf and mute, but 
he probably contracted an illness and became deaf and mute in the sense that he had a speech impediment. So he and Jesus encounters this man who could hardly talk. They brought this man to Jesus and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Why lay his hand on him? Well, probably they heard that that was Jesus' method in healing the sick. Jesus would lay his hands on them. But here in this account, Jesus did something very different to this man. Jesus took him aside from the crowd. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, poop, he touched the man's tongue. Yes, we read that. Jesus used spit in healing this man. And he would do the same in the next chapter, chapter 8, when he spits on the eyes of the blind man in Bethsaida. More details on that, I leave it in the next sermon. Now I once joked with uh, Pastor Joe, who's sitting at the back. I once joked with him on the day I found out that he was going to see an eye doctor because he has some issues with his eyes. I told him, why don't you let me spit on your eye? And you may not need to see the eye doctor. And you know what was his reply? He says, no, thank you. Commentaries that I read do not say much about this strange healing, except that they say that spittle, saliva was used in ancient medical practice. It was believed that saliva has some healing properties. Today, some people still believe that. They believe that saliva has antibacterial properties. Now, you may want to ask the doctor, but I don't want to comment. I once heard somebody suggest to me, because I used to have oftentimes catch a sore throat, they would tell me, you know what you do? When you wake up in the morning, before you brush your teeth, swallow all the saliva that you have collected during the night. Because it's going to heal your sore throat. It's going to introduce antibodies. I still have sore throat nowadays. So they say that saliva has antibacterial properties. And they say that's the reason why dogs lick their wounds to promote healing. Although my vet wouldn't agree to that. Is Jesus here using a common medical, common medical practice of his day? Perhaps. But we know that his method produced instant healing. It's instant healing. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus' use of spit may be connected to the theme of clean and unclean in this chapter, because we've seen that. Or it could be connected to the theme of offense and insults. Why do I say so? You see, in the Old Testament, spitting on someone is an insult. And that remains true to this day. And so if spit here is connected to the theme of offense and insult, is the account telling us that the Lord's method can be unpleasant, repulsive even. He uses spit here. If it was seen as unpleasant, because it is in our time, then the Lord's unpleasant method 
however unpleasant it was, brought about healing. Just as his unpleasant remark to the Syrophoenician woman brought about healing to her daughter. All we need, all the people needed to do, is to humbly receive and submit to the Lord. So Jesus looked up to heaven, telling us that healing is from God. We were told that he, he sighed, and a few possible explanations include, and I gathered this from Ben Witherington, he said, Jesus groaned from the strain of healing. Jesus sighed to reflect heartache over the ravages of disease. Or Jesus sighed as a sign of heartfelt prayer. Because sometimes we do that when we pray, right? Don't we? We say, ah, we sigh in prayer. Still, one suggestion was that it was a technique that Gentiles would have understood a technique that demonstrated power from the one performing healing as Jesus said the words, be open in Aramaic. We read that the man's ears were open, his tongue loosened, and he spoke plainly to the result that the people were amazed and they could not stop declaring, slide comes up, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And this echoes Isaiah. Next slide. Chapter 35, verses 5 to 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All the more proving for us that Jesus is the Son of God. He comes to make us clean. Not outwardly, but inwardly. But not after offending us, calling out our hypocrisy, and perhaps calling out our pride, or even our heart of hearing so that we may see ourselves for what we really are, the unclean inside needing washing, the undeserving longing for crumbs, the helpless needing help, all of which can only be given by Jesus. And so may we always run to the Son of God, who has called us to repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Lord, when we, when we profess that we honor you with our lips but ignore your moral will, we offer you vain worship. So rescue us, we pray. Cleanse our hearts from sin. Wash us clean again, so that we may honor you and give you acceptable worship. Remind us once again that unworthy as we are, you have graced us. And so we must respond in gratitude, in obedience, and with a desire to proclaim among those who are saved.
your goodness, your glory, your salvation. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.